This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Uh, what happens that we're going to see this morning at the end of Romans 11 because Paul is just going to uh, just uh, be beside himself in praise to this glorious God uh, that we have. So if you're new today, we are walking through the book of Romans and we're going to cover uh, actually a lot of ground today. We're going to be um, at the end of chapter 10 and we're going to go all the way through Romans 11. I don't usually cover that much in one Sunday, but I'm going to do it today because I think you'll see uh, all of this really fits together. From 1016 all the way through 1136 is really one unit, and Paul is really answering the question, what about Israel? You know, Israel we see in the news all of the time, and we know that our faith as believers emerges uh, straight from the Old Testament. We know that Jesus was a Jew and that our faith is really the fulfillment of the promises that we see in the Old Testament. But what about Israel? What about the Jewish people? Our faith emerges straight from them, but, but where do they fit in God's plan? And that's the question that Paul is answering in this text, which is fascinating. It is fascinating from the standpoint of prophecy. It's fascinating from the standpoint of current events and things that are going on today. And so uh, I think your mind's going to be blown <laughs> by some of the stuff here, and hopefully your heart is going to be touched um, today. So I'm not going to try to read um, through the entire text this morning because we're going to be covering most all of that as we go along um, today, but I want us to begin um, in prayer. By the way, if you are uh, following along, I'm not going to put, we're not going to write out every scripture on the screen Okay, so um, you're going to need your Bible, okay, and I, I, I encourage that every single Sunday. I, we put things up on the screen to help, and that's okay, but don't let that be a substitute for you bringing your Bible to church and having it open on your lap. Okay, and I don't care whether it's, you know, a regular Bible or whether it's a tablet like the one that I use. I have to use an iPad because I have, like, eye issues, okay, and you want me to be able to read, so I kind of need to adjust font. Um, and so the iPad is helpful to me. I don't care what you use. I do care that whether it's an old school Bible or a tablet or whatever, that you have the text open, okay, as we're going through. So every, every Sunday, but especially today, you're going to need it. We have, we have Bibles in the pew. We preach from the ESV uh, normally, the English Standard Version. We have the, that Bible in the pew, and today we're going to be on page 946. Page 946 is where we're going to begin if you're using a pew Bible. Let's pray together, though, as we begin. So, Father, we just lift up this time to you. We pray that as we dig into a fascinating part of your word, that your spirit uh, would, would touch us. And, and Lord, that, that we wouldn't just be kind of excited about these things from the standpoint of what's going on in the news and current events, but that we would be blown away by the fact that you fulfill your promises, that you are faithful in all of your ways 
as we have already sung today. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would touch us as we walk through your word today. This is a crucial hour. Lord, when, when Bibles are open and hearts are open, there's just like no end to the great things that can happen <laughs> in lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just do your wonderful work today as only you can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first trip to Israel was in 2007. And that was just one of the most magical times of my life because I'd studied the Bible for all these years and you know suddenly I'm, I'm getting to walk on the places where Jesus walked and just kind of get the, the the background in my in my mind of, of all these stories that I've, I've read about for for years and years and so it was both incredibly enriching to my study of, of scripture and what it also did was that it fueled my desire to learn even more. It gave me a thirst for more and especially learning more biblical history. And so my trip to Israel in 2007 was kind of like a step into the past and my trip to Israel last year was like a step into the future. And here's what I mean by that. Because last year when I visited Israel, I was visiting with Messianic believers. I was visiting with Jewish followers of Jesus, Yeshua. And the thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in Israel in our day is absolutely astounding. Because Jewish people are coming to Jesus as their Messiah in numbers that have not been seen since the book of Acts. It is an incredible thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in Israel. And as we're going to see in this text today, that has to do with, with what God has promised to do among Jewish people in the future. And so while my trip to Israel in 2007 was a step into the past, my trip there last year was like stepping into the future. And we're going to see what God is going to do in this text today. And we're going to see there's tremendous application to our own lives as well. So we're going to kind of break this down um, into uh, some different parts here this morning as we walk through the end of chapter 10 and then kind of walk through chapter 11. The first thing that we see at the end of chapter 10 in verses 16 through 21 is Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Israel's rejection of the Messiah. So last week we ended up in verse 15. And we saw there that, that Paul uh, just kind of, um, he, he just, he, he, he says at the end of verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But then, beginning in verse 16, it takes a turn. And he says in verse 16, but, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And it's clear from the context that he's talking about his fellow Jews, most of whom were still rejecting the gospel, most of whom were not receiving Jesus as the Messiah. And so the question is why? What's the problem? So in verses 18 through 21, that's what he's dealing with. Let's, let's look at it together. Look in your Bibles. Um, at chapter 10 and verses 18 and, and following. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. 
for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands for, to a disobedient and contrary people. Um, and so Paul makes it clear here that the problem is not that Israel hasn't heard. In fact, by the time that he writes this letter, the, the gospel has, has gone out into, you know, throughout the Greco-Roman world, the known world at the time. And, and we see in his ministry, in city after city, he's going out and he's doing ministry in the, in the synagogues among Jewish people and everything. And so he says the problem is not that they haven't heard. That's not it. And then the second question is, did they not understand? Well, he says, well, no, that's not the problem either. No, he says the problem is disobedience. The problem is stubbornness, hardness of heart. And he finishes here in verse 21 with this tender image of God holding out his hands to the Jewish people. And, and beckoning them, pleading with them, inviting them to come. And that image reminds us of, of, of Jesus weeping at the Mount of Olives. As we read about in, in, the, in the Gospels, you know, Jesus gets to, just before he, he enters the city of, Jer of Jerusalem, on that, on that first, uh, on Palm Sunday, just before he, re he enters into Jerusalem, he's standing on the Mount of Olives and he looks out over the city of Jerusalem and what does Jesus say? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How I would have longed to have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so the picture here is just Jesus just, just hold, holding out his arms and said, I, I, would have, I, would have, I, would have, I would long to pull you to myself, but you're not willing, okay? Because of hardness of heart. So that's the image here that Paul closes with, closes chapter 10 with in verse 21. Israel's rejection of the Messiah, okay? Second, God's refusal to reject Israel. And we see this in the first five verses of chapter 11. So in verse 1, he says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? And he responds here with this same Greek phrase that we've seen before in Romans. In Greek, it's meganoito, but it's the strongest possible denial by no means. Absolutely not. Paul says, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. He's talking about the Jews. And then he begins to cite some of the key evidence for that. And one of the key evidences for that is that God has always preserved a remnant 
of believing Jews. And Paul says here, I am exhibit A of that. So continuing in verse 1, he says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> Paul says, you know, look at me and people like me. We are Jews who have believed on Jesus as our Messiah. So throughout history, God has always preserved a remnant of believing Jews. And so he goes on here in, in verses two and following to talk about that. He says God, in verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God has always preserved a, a, a remnant. Yeah, you know, he cites here this example from, from, from the Old Testament where Elijah felt like, oh, I'm the only one. <laughs> I'm the only faithful one. God says, no, you're not the only one. <laughs> There's a, there's a remnant that I preserved. And God, God has always preserved a remnant of believing Jews. You know, people like Rabbi Leopold Kohn. Leopold Kohn was born in a Jewish ghetto in Hungary in 1862. When he was seven years old, uh, he and his sister were orphaned. Both, both parents died. And just like many Jewish people in the late 19th century, he found himself as an immigrant in New York City on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And one night in 1892, as a 30-year-old man, uh, Rabbi Leopold Cohn was walking down a street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and he looked up and he saw the sign that said, Meetings for Jews. And he was intrigued, and he, and he walked in, and he saw about 800 Jewish people there singing praises to Jesus. And he found himself... So he was simultaneously intrigued and repelled. And he found himself just walking out in the middle of the service. But for some strange reason, I think we know why, he found himself picking up some literature before he left the building and getting the pastor's number. And so Leopold Cohn ended up becoming a follower of Jesus and devoting his life to reaching Jewish people. He was a founder of Chosen People Ministries, which is still a very, very vibrant ministry uh, reaching Jewish people to this day. Um, but, but Leopold Kohn once said this of ministry to his fellow Jews. He said, I showed them from the scriptures that to believe in Yeshua was Jewish faith, real Jewish faith. Right? The, the most natural thing in the world for Jewish people was to believe in Jesus. And, and that, was, that was Paul's ministry, right? So uh, he, God has always preserved this, this believing remnant of, of Jewish people. Third thing that we see here is God's present work among Gentiles. And we see that in chapter 11 and, and verses 11 through 24. And let's begin by looking here at verse 11. Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble 
in order that they might fall. He's talking about his fellow Jews here um, and their rejection of Jesus, okay? He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is God done with them? Is God done with Israel? Did they stumble in order that they might fall finally? Again, meganoito by no means. No. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Um, so, in other words, is the, the rejection of the gospel that, that was seen by most Jews in the first century and even today, is that an indication that you know, God is done with the Jewish people? No. Absolutely not. It's part of God's plan to reach Gentiles, because what does he say here in the latter part of verse 11? Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, we see this working out very practically in Paul's ministry, don't we? Because what's his normal practice in city after city after city? What does he do? His normal modus operandi is that he goes into the city. What's the first place he goes? Synagogue, okay? He goes to minister to Jews. If, if, you know, usually, uh, there, there's, you know, some Jewish people would come to Christ, but you know, usually uh, he was rejected um, and he couldn't go to the synagogue any longer. What did he do? He would go to the Gentiles. So that we see that working out in a very uh, practical way in Paul's ministry. That, that, that God has used Jewish rejection of the gospel to blow open the doors of outreach to Gentiles. But even that is a part of his plan to eventually reach Jews because what does he say here at the end of verse 11? He says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, there's a bad kind of jealousy that we're all familiar with, but there's a good kind of jealousy. And this is the good kind. Because Paul is saying here that as Jewish people see more and more Gentiles coming to faith in this Jew named Jesus and having their lives transformed, he says that eventually Jewish people are going to say, hey, wait a second. Wasn't Jesus one of us? And so there, it, God is going to use actually Gentile acceptance of the gospel to bring Jewish people back to himself. Let's keep following it. Verse 12. He says, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, he's hinting here at something that we're going to see in a few minutes. All right, he's hinting here that there is going to be one day a mass turning of Jewish people to Jesus, Okay. He's foreshadowing at this point. Let's keep going. 
uh, verses 13 and following. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, if Jewish rejection of the gospel has blown open the doors of outreach to Gentiles and been a blessing to Gentiles, what is it going to be like for Gentiles when Jewish people start coming to Jesus in mass? It is going to be amazing. Paul is saying here, you Gentiles aren't going to lose anything when Jewish people come to Jesus as their Messiah. No, it's going to be an amazing blessing for everybody when that happens. Now part of what he's doing here too is that he's dealing with a tension that existed in the church at Rome. Because in the church at Rome, uh, there was some tension between believers from a Gentile background who were the majority in that church and between believers from a, a Jewish background. And part of what Paul wants to communicate here to Gentile believers is, look, you need to understand, because there were evidently in the church at Rome, there were some Gentiles who were saying, ah, oh, you know, God's done, with, God's done with the Jews. You know, that's kind of all, all in the past. Um, you know, and, and uh, Paul, Paul wants to, to, uh, to, uh, to clear up that, their ignorance on that matter. And he wants Gentile believers to understand, no, 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 no. God is not done with the Jewish people. And furthermore, all the blessings that you enjoy in Christ are coming from that Jewish root. Okay, so let's look um, at verses 17 and 18. He says now, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you... Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. <laughs> Paul says to Gentile believers like us, listen, all these blessings that you enjoy in Christ, guess where they come from? They, they all, they, these, are, these things are a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. The Messiah comes through Israel. And we are on the receiving end of that blessing, but we are not to be puffed up about that. You know, we are not to be haughty about that. We are to understand that these blessings that we enjoy in Christ flow from um, Judaism and the, the Jewish Messiah. And Paul uses here uh, an image, it's very vivid image here. He uses the image of an olive tree, which is Jesus. And then you've got the natural branches of that olive tree, which are Jewish people. I mean, the most natural people in the world <laughs> to believe in Jesus would be Jews. After all, Jesus was a Jew. So the natural branches are Jews, and then the wild olive shoot, that's us, right? Those, that's, that's Gentile believers. Now, we're both grafted into Jesus, right? So we're all, there's one body of Christ, right? We're both grafted into Jesus, both the natural branches and the wild uh, olive shoots are 
are, are, are grafted into him. But, but listen, who are we <laughs> as the wild olive shoots that have been grafted in? I mean, who are we to, uh, to, uh, to, to look down upon Jews, let alone to be anti-Semitic? I mean, the most, the most uh, how in the world could a, could a Christian ever be an anti-Semite? I mean, I just, that makes, that's just nonsensical. Verses 19 through 24. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you who were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And now... Paul, once again, is hinting at what is to come because there is coming a time near the return of Christ when the natural branches are going to be grafted back in. And that's the fourth thing that we see here. God's future work among Jews. God's future work among Jews. Verses 25 and 26. So let's look first at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now Paul tells us two things here about this hardening that has come upon Israel. First of all, it's partial. It's not complete. It's partial. And the reason that we know that is what we've been talking about. God has always preserved a remnant of believing Jews. So the hardening is partial. Second, the hardening is temporary. It's temporary. There is coming a time when, when after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, that God is going to deal with Israel and there's going to be a mass turning of Jews to Jesus. This is almost like a gospel boomerang. So what happens when you throw out a boomerang, right? You throw it out, but then it comes back, right? Out, back. And this is like a gospel boomerang. Because he's saying here, the gospel begins where, right? You've got, Jesus is a Jew. And the earliest followers of Jesus are Jews. Okay, so, but then that gospel boomerang goes out to Gentiles. But then he says there's coming a time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when that gospel boomerang is going to come back to the Jews. And God is going to do a great work among the Jewish people. When is that going to happen? 
It's going to happen near the time of the return of Christ. Look at verse 26. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. In verse 27, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So let's kind of put some things together here, all right? Um, this great work among the Jewish people is going to take place, he says in verse 25, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this is, this is mind-blowing, okay? So when you think about gospel work among Gentiles, what's the pattern that we see here? So in the first century, the book of Acts, right, you've got rapid, rapid growth of the gospel among Gentiles, okay? And, and, and then, you know, throughout... Uh, the centuries, you've got, you've got sort of right in the, in the book of Acts, so you've got like this, this, this rapid growth of the gospel among Gentiles. But then from, you know, from the end of the first century um, up until like the end of World War II, the gospel is growing. It's growing among Gentiles throughout the world, but, it, but it's kind of growing like this, right? The graph, the graphs going upward, but you know, it's not, it's not steep. I mean, it's, it's, the trend is up, but it's kind of like a slow incline. But then what happens? What happens like, to, at the, like after World War II with reaching Gentiles? Instead of going like this, it starts going like, like that. There has been like this amazing advance in missions since the end of World War II. I mean, it's absolutely incredible how Gentile people group after Gentile people group after Gentile people group who before had, had little or no access to the gospel is, is coming to Jesus. And so since the end of World War II, we've got this rapid advance of the gospel among Gentiles. Now, the job is not done. There are still thousands of Gentile people groups who have never even heard of Jesus, okay? But what's happening is that, that the gospel is advancing rapidly. An unreached people group after unreached people group after unreached people group is coming to know Jesus. We are a part of that in our church as we pray and as we give and as we go. So it's happening among Gentiles at an astounding rate. It's not done yet, but, but, but the pace the pace of Gentiles coming to Jesus, there's been this rapid, rapid acceleration since 1945. What has also happened since the end of World War II? From the ashes of the Holocaust, God has miraculously brought the Jewish people back to the promised land. And in 1948, the modern state of Israel is founded. And so millions and millions of Jewish people are going back to the land of their ancestors. So you've got Jewish people being gathered back to the land. And now, here's what's happening in the land, in the land of Israel. There's this rapid expansion of the gospel among Jews in Israel. The most responsive harvest field of Jewish people in the world to the gospel is in Israel. So here's what's happened in Israel. 
1948, when the state of Israel was founded, we could only count 23 Israelis that believed in Jesus as Messiah. By 1989, it was just 1,200. In 1999, it was about 5,000. But then in 2017, and this is very, this is, this figure is super conservative, and it's also almost two years old. But by 2017, conservatively, there were 30,000 Jewish believers in Jesus in Israel, and it is expanding rapidly, rapidly. You, you check out, um, if you're on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, go, go to One for Israel and see these amazing videos that these Messianic believers are producing. They are getting millions of hits from Israelis. God is doing something astounding and bringing Jewish people to, 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 the, to the Messiah in, in Israel. So, let's put it together. I want to give you four points in an amazing storyline. Four points in an amazing storyline. First of all, God brings the Messiah through Israel to bless the whole world. That's Genesis 12, right? God says, I'm going to create this new people through Abraham, right? And then what does he say? He says, through you, through Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God brings the Messiah through Israel to bless the whole world. Second, God brings the Jewish people back to the land. Third, God brings Jewish people in the land back to the Messiah. Fourth, the Messiah returns and reigns as king. That's an amazing story, isn't it? That's, that's the awesomeness of our God. I wanna leave you with three points of application this morning. Three points of application. First, we should reject replacement theology. Um, now let me kind of explain uh, to you what we're talking about here. You may come across it at some point. Um, but replacement theology is basically the idea that God has done with Jews. Oh, you know, they had their time, and, and you know, but, but God, God's finished. God is finished with the Jewish people, and you know, all these promises that he made to Israel, well, what, he was really talking about, talking about us. Like it, 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 it puts us in the position of having to take just scores and scores and scores of text where God is talking about Israel, and, and, and it puts us in the position of saying to, Jew, to, to Jewish people, well, you know, actually he wasn't talking about you, he was talking about us. Excuse me? <laughs> really? Charles Spurgeon, who fought against replacement theology fiercely in the 19th century, uh, said this of, of replacement theology. He said, I wish never to learn the art of tearing God's meaning out of his own words. More recently, uh, the great British New Testament scholar, 
Charles Cranfield, in his commentary on Romans, uh, speaks of the ugly and unscriptural notion that God has cast off his people Israel and simply replaced it by the Christian church. These three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, emphatically forbid us to speak of the church as having once and for all taken the place of the Jewish people. And listen, the idea, you know, that God was going to do a great work among Jewish people in the end times, that is not something that is novel or new in theology. The Puritans fervently believed this. And the greatest American theologian of all, and one of the greatest theologians in history, Jonathan Edwards, said this. Edwards said, nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews in the 11th chapter of Romans. So listen, we should utterly reject replacement theology. Here's, by the way, here's what we should also reject. We should also reject any notion, and you can see this among uh, some prominent teachers, unfortunately, we should reject any notion that Jewish people can be saved apart from the gospel. That is a lie from the pit of hell and heresy. Everybody needs the gospel to be saved. Here's a second point of application. We should view history and current events with confidence. Too many Christians spend their time watching cable news and looking at news on social media and freaking out. First of all, what are you doing spending your time watching a bunch of talking heads on TV or watching a bunch of junk on Facebook? Spending hours and hours and hours cruising the internet and on social media. Take that time and dig into your Bible. Take that time and serve the Lord in your church. You say, oh, I don't have time to serve. Really? You got lots of time for your hobbies. You got lots of time to watch TV and cruise the internet and, and spend your time glued to a screen. But not only that, look, for, for, for us of all people <laughs> to look at current events and just be freaked out is so dishonoring to the sovereign God who holds history in his hands. I mean, listen, we should look at, look at history and look at current events the way that we look at a, at a game where we already know the outcome. <laughs> There's a couple of ways that you can, you can look at games, right? You can look at a game live and you don't know how the story is going to end and so your emotions are kind of like, Ooh, you know, oh, what's going to happen? But then you can watch a game that you've recorded where <laughs> you know your team is victorious at the end, okay? That's the way we should watch current events in history. Right, we should, watch, we should watch history and current events the way that we watch games on ESPN Classic, where they've already happened, where we know the outcome. Friends, we know the outcome here, right? Jesus returns and reigns as king. He's going to put the period at the end of the sentence. He is Lord. 
And he's causing every, every bit of history, right? To just go according to, to his, his sovereign plan for the world, right? And the, and the end is going to be glorious, man. We, we, listen, should we be burdened by things that happen in the world? Absolutely, we should be burdened. We should pray for these, pray for these things, obviously, right? And, and seek to be a, a part of the solution of making them better. But we should be at peace, peace, about, the, about current events and history, God is in control. God is on the throne. We should view history and current events with confidence. Third, we should stand in awe of the glory of God. Ah, Paul finishes here in verses 33 through 36. It's like, it's like he's, he's like, what have I just written? This is blowing my mind. <laughs> well, Holy Spirit, what have you just given me? It's like he's just caught up in praise here at the end of chapter 11. What does he say here, beginning in verse 33? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. From him, he is the source and creator of all things. Through him, he is the sustainer of all things. To him, he is the ultimate end of all things. To him be glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Mm. Father, we, we praise you, our glorious God. Lord, how we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to live um, in these exciting days that we live in. When you were doing, when, when you were doing such a work among people around the world, Gentiles, Jews, and Lord, we get to be a part of this. We thank you for a, a church that loves the gospel. We thank you for a church um, that's heavily involved in missions, that gives to missions and goes and prays so that our, our local labor is linked to what you are doing globally around the world. It's, it's exciting uh, to be a part of this. Lord, and we, we pray that, that our lives uh, would be lived for your glory, Lord, in all things. As we just continue to pray uh, right now, listen, I would, I would ask you, do you know the King? Do you know Jesus? The door is open. He's inviting you to come. The work has been done. Jesus died for sinners like you and me upon the cross. He shed his blood for us. He took our sins upon himself. He rose victoriously from the dead. Death has been defeated. Oh, we gathered here uh, yesterday, many of us, to say goodbye to a brother in Christ who had gone home, but gone home to be with the Lord. And, and, that, and that service was really a time of celebration because we know where he is. We know he's with the Lord. The reason that we know that is because he had repented of his sins and trusted in, in Christ. Have you? 
Have you repented of trying to live life your own way, doing your own thing? Have you repented of that and turned to Jesus and trusted, trusted in his shed blood for you, trusted in his resurrection for you, and welcomed him into your life as your king, taking your, taking your hands off of the controls of your life and said, Lord, I'm giving it to you. He's inviting you to come. The work has been done. Turn to Jesus today. If you're here today as a believer, listen. If you've been going half speed, if you've been playing games, this is not the time to play games. We get one brief life to make a difference. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. This is the time to be all out for Jesus. This is the time to be poured into his word. This is the time to be serving the Lord. This is the time to be reaching out to family and friends that don't know Jesus. This is a time for us to, to be channeled into a movement of the gospel. Would you say, Lord, here I am. Use me. Send me. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We lift up this time of invitation to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.